3: On November 8, 1994, while incarcerated for murder in Arizona, Jerry Paisley sat down with three investigators and made a series of startling claims. In a minute, we'll review them. But first, let's go over what we know to be true—the facts. Fact: Congressman Nick Begich vanished on October 16, 1972. Fact. Peggy Begich, Nick's widow, married Jerry Paisley 17 months later. Fact: Paisley had documented ties to two mob families, the Bananos and the Licavolis. Paisley committed at least five murders and three bombings. Fact, Paisley and Peggy started a business, Max Inc., shortly after they married in 1974. Fact, Paisley and Peggy's partner, the company's vice president, was a man named Danny Zivinich. Fact, Peggy received a windfall of cash after Nick, her first husband, disappeared. These things we can prove. Now, claims. And again, these are Jerry Paisley's claims, not mine. Claim, Peggy Begich met with mob boss Joe Bonanno in the summer of 1972, right before Nick Begich vanished. Claim, Joe Iotarola, a Bonanno lieutenant nicknamed Joey the Eye, asked Paisley to carry a locked suitcase to Alaska sometime around September 1972. Claim, Paisley flew the suitcase to Anchorage, where he met up with three men, Danny Zivinich, Gene Fowler, and Larry Fowler. Claim, Zivinich later told Paisley that the suitcase contained a bomb, and that the congressmen were assassinated. <laughs> For iHeartMedia, this is Missing in Alaska, the story of two congressmen who vanished in 1972, and my quest to figure out what happened to them. I'm your host, John Walczak. On January 23rd, 1995, Paisley reiterated his claims during a follow-up interview. He kept naming the same names, including Larry Fowler, Only 27 days later, Fowler was shot to death on a remote road in Alaska. And that's a fact. Are you aware that 27 days after Paisley spoke with an agent in prison that Larry Fowler was murdered? Yes. Did you know it was that shortly after Paisley spoke with an agent? Yes. That's Dave Tullis of the Alaska State Troopers one of three investigators who interviewed Paisley in 1994.
4: That whole homicide was a little bit strange also, but um, Larry Fowler uh, had a reputation was not the nicest guy you'd ever want to meet here in Alaska.
3: And Larry Fowler's homicide was odd. Yes. Why? He was apparently
4: drinking late at a club. He was the owner of a pawn shop Uh, he called for a taxi. I don't know where his vehicle might've been at the time, uh, and instructed the taxi driver where to go. And he ended up on the upper part of the hillside, got really, he had fallen asleep, woke up, was really disturbed. As I recall it, he pulled out a handgun and threatened the taxicab driver. According to the surviving member of this, which was the taxicab driver, taxicab driver just happened to have a weapon in his vehicle. He pulled it out and immediately shot Larry Fowler.
3: The cab driver said he acted in self-defense.
4: This taxi cab driver did not have a history of crime. He was an immigrant to the United States and to Alaska. He was, I believe, Polish. Um, But I didn't find anything completely bizarre about his story except for the fact that he just shot somebody with uh, the provocation being that he thought his life was being threatened and he was employing self-defense but it was just a strange homicide at the time. We had other homicides that followed that were a little bit strange also, involving some Russian immigrants. But this one was particularly strange because Larry Fowler was uh, the victim.
3: The night Fowler died, he had been drinking at an Anchorage bar called the Timeout Lounge. That's where the cabbie picked him up. The cabbie claimed that Fowler directed him into the hills outside Anchorage. He claimed that Fowler, at some point, for some reason, pulled a gun, pointed it at him, and said, you will be dead, motherfucker, you will be dead. He said he shot Fowler in self-defense. He was afraid, in part, because other local cabbies had been murdered recently during botched robberies. Fowler's family found the story suspicious. Why was Fowler in some random, remote area outside Anchorage? Why would he pull a gun on the driver? Fowler was wealthy. He certainly wasn't trying to rob the driver. The night he died, Fowler was dripping in gold and diamonds, and he had $1,500 cash on him. On the flip side, the cops didn't believe that the driver was trying to rob Fowler either. They said the physical evidence backed up the driver's story, and he took and passed a polygraph, or lie detector test. So, on the surface, it seems that the timing of Fowler's death so soon after Paisley named him as someone with knowledge of the missing congressman's alleged assassination, was a pure coincidence. While digging into Fowler's death, I managed to track down one of his friends, Bob Wheel, who had breakfast with him the day he died. That day, Wheel was raising money for his Rotary Club. He wanted Fowler to chip in. The fundraiser was, shall we say, creative.
5: My Rotary Club does an event every year called Moose Marble Madness, And believe it or not, we take 2,000 genuine moose nuggets. I don't know if you've ever seen what a moose turd looks like, but they're about this big around. They're kind of oval-shaped, and because of their diet being these birch trees and willow trees and all that kind of thing, when they take a dump, I mean, it's a solid oval-shaped nugget that's very hard. So we came up with the brilliant idea, myself and my dentist and another uh, dentist that was in my Rotary Club 31 years ago, and decided to call it Moose Marble Madness." We numbered one through 2,000 of these moose turds, and then we had tickets made, and we would sell the turds for 10 bucks apiece. And we'd go up in a helicopter
3: and they would drop the moose nuggets out of a helicopter. Anyway, that morning, the day he died, Larry Fowler gave his buddy Bob Wheel 100 bucks for 10 tickets. The next day, when Wheel learned of Fowler's death, he was stunned. He was also confused like Fowler's family he wondered what his friend had been doing on some random unfamiliar road why was he there a short time later we we'll heard an explanation
5: the only thing i know is that apparently somebody somebody sent a woman in there from what i have heard and the woman slipped larry a piece of paper with her phone number on it and her address and said something to the effect why don't you come see me or visit me or something So when Larry left the bar at 1 or 2 a.m., that was the reason for the taxi cab driver being on Upper Upper Rabbit Creek Road was apparently going to this woman's address that was on the piece of paper that Larry had that this woman had slipped him the night before.
3: Fowler was married at the time, so if he was meeting up with another woman that night, it could explain why he was in an unfamiliar place and why it would be kept hush-hush. Wheel wasn't the only person who told me this, a second source said he heard the same thing. That source speculated that it was a setup, that Fowler was lured out of the bar and killed for some unknown reason. So who was this mystery woman? Did she know Fowler previously? Probably not, since she had to give him her phone number. Adding to the intrigue, multiple sources told me that, at the time of his death, Fowler was funneling illegal contributions to political campaigns and cash directly to multiple politicians. I've heard names of people allegedly involved in the scheme, but without further proof, I can't disclose them. For now. Ultimately, investigators believed the cab driver, and in June 1995, the Anchorage DA declined to prosecute him. So, Larry Fowler, one of five men Jerry Paisley said was involved with, or knew of, the alleged bombing of the missing congressman's plane, was killed before investigators could question him. But what about the other four men Paisley named, Joe Bonanno, Joe Iotirola, Danny Zivinich, and Gene Fowler? Bonanno died in 2002. Iotirola died in 2016. I tried to interview Iotirola before he died, but when I reached him by phone in late 2014, He declined to comment, and he hung up on me. Zivinich declined multiple requests for an on-the-record interview. And Gene Fowler, well, wait. We'll get to him. Okay, so after Jerry Paisley made such startling claims, what exactly happened? What kind of investigation took place? Here's Dave Tullis, the Alaska State Trooper. To my
4: surprise, when I got back with the tapes, uh, We did a transcript, which I looked over and stored the tapes in evidence. And after I decided this was pretty big news and something that needed to be uh, shared with bosses, plural, I went to my sergeant and my lieutenant and gave them my transcript and a copy of my notes. And um, they looked at it for not a long period of time and said, We need to pass this off to the FBI and they notified the FBI and gave them the transcript. And part of my recollection is that they gave them the tapes. Now, whether those were duplicate tapes, the original tapes, I'm not sure.
3: On December 22, 1994, the FBI's Anchorage office received a copy of the Paisley transcript. That prompted the bureau to launch a preliminary investigation led by Special Agent Luann Henderson, Multiple people described Henderson to me as an outstanding, hardworking agent. But for some reason, her investigation into Paisley's claims was, by all accounts, cursory, insufficient, and weak. Mainly, it consisted of reviewing the transcript, looking at court records, reviewing FBI files, and reading old newspaper clips. To my knowledge, Henderson conducted only a single interview on September 13, 1995, That day, Henderson and another agent spoke with Danny Zivinich, Paisley's former business partner. The man who Paisley claimed told him that the missing congressman's plane was bombed. The FBI's interview with Zivinich lasted a total of 45 minutes. Then on that very same day, the office of the U.S. attorney in Alaska declined to prosecute the case. Which, funny enough, nobody seems to remember. Bob Bundy, the U.S. attorney at the time, told me he doesn't remember the case. Karen Loeffler, the assistant U.S. attorney who handled it directly, told me she doesn't remember the case. Wiley Thompson, at the time the special agent in charge, or SAC of the FBI in Alaska, told me he doesn't remember the case. And former special agent Luann Henderson declined a request for an on-the-record interview. In September 1995, the same month the FBI closed its investigation into Paisley's claims, it replaced SAC Wiley Thompson with another agent, Marshall Bratton. Bratton's name is on an FBI document acknowledging that the U.S. Attorney's Office declined to prosecute the case. Bratton told me he doesn't remember the case either. Kevin Friesley, a supervisor in the FBI's Anchorage office at the time, declined interview requests. When I reached him by phone, he hung up on me. Danny Zivinich also declined multiple requests for an on-the-record interview. So basically, nobody remembers the case and or nobody wants to talk about it. It's important to note that Zivinich's bar was, at the time, a popular watering hole for FBI agents. Many of the same agents who would have been tasked with investigating him were friends with him and hung out at his bar. I'm not insinuating that this was the case with Special Agent Henderson, who, to my knowledge, was not friends with Zivinich and did not frequent his bar, unlike some of her colleagues. But why did the FBI only conduct a single interview, the Zivinich interview? Theoretically, the Bureau could have interviewed Larry Fowler, I guess. But to be fair, Fowler was killed only weeks after Paisley first named him. But the FBI never interviewed any of the other people Paisley named. Joe Bonanno was never interviewed. Gene Fowler was never interviewed. Joe Iotarola was never interviewed. And Peggy Begich wasn't interviewed. The FBI only interviewed one person, Danny Zivanich, for 45 minutes. The three Arizona and Alaska investigators who interviewed Jerry Paisley in 1994, before the FBI got involved, have serious doubts about how the Bureau investigated, or more specifically, failed to investigate Paisley's claims. Do you think, given the severity and the seriousness of Jerry Paisley's allegations, that it is sufficient enough of an investigation to basically review? archives and newspaper clippings and talk to one suspect for 45 minutes?
4: I would have to say no. I don't think that's sufficient at all. And um, one of the things I was cautious about is uh, Arizona doesn't really allow recordings in a penal institution. But the Alaska State Troopers insisted, and I insisted, that we record the conversation. Had we not done that, there would have been no record of really what happened except our notes. The FBI doesn't record hardly anything in my experience. They use 302s where they write their notes, but they do not record. And I was very pleased that the troopers uh, insisted, and I insisted, on recording the conversations. And I was quite surprised that it didn't go any farther than that, and the FBI apparently didn't do an extensive investigation on the subject, and I didn't really know how much they had or had not done, but word filled back over a couple of years and I thought it was not well done at
6: all.
3: Dave Tullis is a reliable source if there ever was one. He served for 20 years in the U.S. Air Force as both a fighter pilot and an aircraft accident investigator. He served for six years as an Alaska State Trooper, investigating major crimes, including homicides. And later, he worked for the Anchorage International Airport Police and Fire Department. Then he retired. Mike Grimes, one of the other two investigators, also had decades of experience. First as a patrolman for the Anchorage Police Department, then on the vice squad, and finally as head of the department's homicide unit. Getting back to the FBI, when you got back to Alaska, what follow-up did you see on what Paisley had told you about the alleged bombing? When I got back, I do, you know him telling me this.
7: I knew how big a deal that was. Um, you know, two U.S. congressmen might have been murdered while they were in Alaska. I called uh, an FBI agent that I worked with on numerous cases of homicides and such as that. And uh, we met and I told her and, and then uh, you know, and she said, I, "You know, I, I got to take this right to the SAC." You know, and I, at that time, I waited till uh, uh, we were thinking these murders he's telling us about. If the bodies showed up or whatever, they were probably trooper cases. You know, from where he's saying they took them out somewhere. So Dave Tullis took the cassette tapes and had them all transcribed, and the transcription was multiple pages, about that thick, and. And uh, so I waited till I got the transcript back. And uh, so I ran off an extra copy and met with uh, this FBI agent, uh, Luann Henderson. And I told her about it and I said, here's the transcript. And uh, I said, this is way, way out of my league uh, as far as uh, my jurisdiction and such as that. And she took it and I didn't hear anything from her for three or four weeks, you know, nothing. And, uh, you know, which really surprised me because we had worked so closely on some other cases. Uh, I mean, we did a drug murder where we had to, uh, well, again, fly to Arizona to, <laughs> and work this drug murder and brought a guy back with us. Uh, and he took us to where the body was uh, up in Alaska. But uh, so we, we had a great relationship, and I have really a lot of respect for her. But anyway, she came back, uh, or didn't come back with any information. I finally kept calling and calling, and uh, you know, and she said, "Well, meet me somewhere." So, obviously, she didn't want to meet in her office or my office. So, we went and met, and she said, "I said, what's going on?" I, th- I said, "I keep waiting for a phone call of somebody wanting to interview me." And she goes, "Uh, this ain't being handled out of here, this thing, SAC, he called Washington and Washington said, don't do anything. You you don't put anybody on this, do not open an investigation, send everything you got to us. I go, oh, okay. And uh, so I said, well, I would imagine that whoever they send to look into this is going to be calling me. That only makes sense. I know everybody. I did the, took the statement from him and, uh, and I worked with the FBI over and over. I had just graduated from the FBI National Academy the year before, at Quantico. I had been brought to Quantico to instruct on our homicide response team set up. And I'd been to Quantico and the FBI Academy, geez, probably seven, eight, nine times and they're not going to call me? I mean, I was amazed. I mean, I was brought as the Alaska representative for the founding of the International Homicide Investigators Association. I was the Alaska guy. And so I had been vetted by the the feds over and over again. And these guys are going to come out of Washington DC and they're not going to call the one guy that knows all these people? That doesn't even make sense.
3: The FBI's investigation went nowhere. Like Grimes and Tullis, Tom Davis, the third investigator, also had a long, distinguished career in law enforcement. He worked for decades for the Arizona Department of Public Safety, focusing, for a time, on organized crime. Davis told me that, other than him, Grimes, and Tullis, someone from the FBI also interviewed Paisley directly. If that's true, and I can't prove that it is, there's no official record of the interview and no information on who conducted it.
5: The Bureau, I know for a fact, interviewed Jerry, um, only because their answer back to me was, we didn't need your approval. And I sat back and I said, that's right. I said, did he cooperate? Well,
3: he, he's not believable. I said, okay. To your knowledge, was there any more in-depth investigation or follow-up? No, no, but a lot of that basically has to do with the
5: fact that the conversation had to do with a person that... um, get in line, my friend, uh, and you, you want to push your weight around, that's fine. Uh, but get in line.
3: In conclusion, then, Tom Davis, Mike Grimes, and Dave Tullis, three seasoned investigators, interviewed Jerry Paisley in Arizona in November 1994. Paisley told them that he transported a locked suitcase to Alaska in 1972, that Danny Zivinich, with whom he and Peggy Begich started a business, told him the suitcase contained high-tech explosives, and that the missing congressman's plane had been bombed. The FBI learned about this and conducted a cursory, feeble investigation. And the U.S. attorney for Alaska, the assistant U.S. attorney, the special agent in charge of the FBI in Alaska, and the SAC who replaced him, none of them, supposedly, remember any of this. I guess it's possible to forget that time in your career when a murderer with mob ties who married the widow of a missing congressman, claimed the congressman was assassinated and that a famous missing plane had been bombed. Is that something you would forget? So, the FBI didn't do much, and the U.S. Attorney's Office declined to prosecute the case. What about the media? In the mid-90s, an enterprising producer for Dateline NBC named Chris Scholl learned about Paisley's allegations and launched his own investigation. Scholl, who's now an executive at NBC News, did a really good job. I respect him. We had some of the same sources. One of these sources gave me copies of letters and emails Scholl sent in the 90s and early 2000s. Typically, I would never report the content of another reporter's correspondence. But since so few people investigated Paisley's claims, so many sources have died, and the information is valuable, I'm breaking that rule. In an email sent to a source on September 17, 1997, Scholl wrote that he spoke, quote, to a former reporter for the Anchorage Daily News. He won a Pulitzer for reporting on the mafia in Alaska in the 1970s. And he told me my theory was not only plausible, but that law enforcement sources of his speculated about a bomb even back then. Scholl continued, quote, The reporter told me one of his law enforcement sources took several statements from witnesses that night who reported seeing someone lurking around the plane. I'm trying to locate the officer who told the reporter this and, ultimately, those witnesses. So here we have a four-time Emmy Award-winning investigative producer saying that one of his sources, a Pulitzer winner, heard directly from a cop, that witnesses saw someone lurking around the congressman's plane the night before it disappeared. I know that's a chain of so-and-so heard from so-and-so, but look at the provenance. A cop told a Pulitzer winner, who in turn told a respected producer for Dateline NBC. In a separate letter to a different source, which I also obtained, Scholl emphasized that he was in no way a conspiracy theorist. Quote, My profession requires skepticism, but I'm also a committed investigative journalist and, frankly, it just seems like something stinks here. He goes on to say that he was, quote, immensely skeptical of claims made by people like Paisley, who clearly enjoys talking about his past exploits. That alone may be enough motivation for him to lie. But beyond that, he seems to have little reason to completely fabricate a story. And in fact, large chunks of what he's saying, I've been able to document. Honestly, I dreaded asking Schull for an interview. <laughs> This is just a weird situation for both of us. Because now, not only is Scholl an executive at NBC News, but specifically, he helps to oversee news standards, working on issues of fairness and accuracy. Typically, he would be one of the people helping to decide whether or not NBC reporters should participate in a project like this. So I was surprised that he agreed to do an interview, and I was excited to speak with him. You had the rare opportunity to speak to Jerry Paisley. Did you interview him in prison? I met him, um,
8: yeah, not with a camera, but yes. He was in a jail, um, um, it was prison. It was whatever the name of the jail is there in Tucson.
3: The Pima County Jail.
8: Right, that sounds right.
3: And, and what, was, what was that experience like, meeting him?
8: Um, weird. <laughs> I mean, I arrived and, uh, you know, you go through the normal security stuff with the jail, um, uh, glass reinforced doors all of that kind of thing went past the security booth checked in my my stuff um, and uh, and went into the room and um, uh, it was a small room uh, he was sitting across the table from me kind of at an angle and uh, I uh, he was not wearing handcuffs um, uh, and uh, just was sitting there and we kind of shook hands um, and I sat down, he sat down, and that's about when he told me he uh, he could uh, kill me right, right then if he wanted to, <laughs> which, which was, um, you know, I, I actually thought it was pretty silly, you know. It seemed like he was trying to, uh, a little bit of bluster, a little bit of a bluff. I didn't take him seriously, um, but it was, I thought, a pretty good sign uh, as to what this guy was all about.
3: I asked Scholl what he meant in the 90s when he wrote that, quote, something stinks here.
8: Well, it was so weird, right? I mean, um, Paisley was uh, an unquestionably lousy guy. And uh, the fact that he was uh, uh, later got married to the uh, the wife of a congressman who died and that he was making claims about having some involvement in that. Stinks, right? I mean, I don't know what it means. I, I wasn't able to determine for sure that he was telling the truth. That's clear. But I also wasn't uh, aware of any evidence that I came across that would indicate he had a real good reason to lie. Now, prisoners, you know, guys like that lie all the time and and he, they sometimes do it for their own reasons it's not always clear what their reasoning is maybe he wanted to transfer to another uh facility somewhere but from what i remember there was no real upside to him lying about this and i as i had been told he had also uh, been truthful uh to uh, you know on uh, to law enforcement officer on a number of other occasions about other things he had uh, been involved with that they sort of knew he had been involved with, so my uh, my conclusion was this is weird. It stinks. It just by by that it doesn't mean uh, that I had you know I had this nailed down. It means that something wasn't right it felt that way to me.
3: Scholl said that while he can't prove anything, Paisley came across as truthful.
8: I can tell you that uh, when I when I walked in when I sat down with him, um, I. I I came away believing him, uh, at least in part, and partly because he did not actually fess up to anything that would have made his role look you know, huge, right? He fessed up to a fairly minor role, um, and, and he also professed that he didn't really know why. That's my recollection, anyway. He didn't really know what he was doing or the purpose of everything behind it but he played this role, he said. So I, to me, I came away because I thought, you know, if this guy was really trying to hype himself, he would have made himself a bigger character. He was already, uh, you know, I think in life in prison at that point, he had really nothing to lose by fessing up to more, uh, so, and I found him, you know, I mean, I've interviewed a lot of people through the years who um, who are lying, or who have an incentive to lie. And I have a pretty good radar for that. There's no way to know for sure with him. But I I just found him credible.
3: Shoal also spoke briefly with Peggy Begich. I assume there's probably nothing you can share directly about that conversation.
8: I, I yeah, I don't want to get into the details. it's it's fair to say she thought uh she thought Paisley was a bad guy.
6: Yep. She
8: regretted it, let me put it that way. But beyond that, I don't want to characterize
3: anything. Ultimately, despite Scholl's hard work, Dateline didn't run the story, mainly because there was no definitive ending. So, who was the Pulitzer-winning reporter who told Scholl that witnesses saw someone lurking around the missing congressman's plane the night before it vanished? In an email, Scholl didn't name the reporter, but his description of a reporter who won a Pulitzer in Alaska in the 70s narrows things down significantly. In fact, there are only two people who fit that profile, Bob Porterfield and Howard Weaver. Porterfield and Weaver worked for the Anchorage Daily News. In 1976, they won a Pulitzer for a series they did on the statewide influence of the powerful Teamsters Union. I tried to interview the men, both of whom are still alive. Porterfield declined requests for an on-the-record interview. Weaver, however, agreed to speak with me. But after our initial email exchange, he stopped responding. Scholl said that, if memory serves him, it was Weaver, not Porterfield, who told him that witnesses saw someone lurking around the plane the night before it disappeared. Oddly enough, Weaver's name has come up repeatedly during my investigation, sometimes in unexpected situations. Multiple people, not Chris Scholl, but others, told me that Weaver knows much more about all of this than he's letting on, that he has specific, important information about Paisley's claims. So, Howard, if you're listening, call me. Around 2000, an award-winning Alaska author named Charles Wolforth started digging into Paisley's claims, too. Among other people, Wolforth spoke with Mike Grimes, the Anchorage cop who helped interview Paisley in 1994. Grimes said he gave Woolforth everything he had. But for some reason, Woolforth never wrote a book. Like Chris Scholl, he dropped the project. According to Grimes, Woolforth got scared off. Woolforth did not respond to recent interview requests. But I did have a chance to speak with him briefly by phone in 2015. During that call, Woolforth told me that he dropped the project not because he was scared off, but because he was unable to corroborate Paisley's claims, to definitively establish, beyond doubt, the correct narrative. But there's something odd here. See, Walforth went to high school with Mark Begich and Tom Begich. He's a friend of the Begich family. In fact, he told me that the Begich family cooperated with him on the project. So, if you take him at his word then, he was investigating claims made by his friend's ex-stepfather that their mother had been involved in the assassination of their father. And he was going to publish a book on all of this? Does that make sense to you? I mean, maybe, to get ahead of the story, I guess. But it makes more sense to me that Woolforth conducted what would typically be referred to as opposition research, or OPPO, to see what dirt he could dig up on Mark Begich before Begich ran for public office. Shortly after Woolforth dropped the project, Mark Begich was elected the mayor of Anchorage. He served two terms, before winning a seat in the U.S. Senate in 2008. In 2014, he lost his reelection bid. In 2018, he lost a gubernatorial bid too. Tom Begich, his brother, is also a politician, an Alaska state senator. Via email, Tom Begich denied that Wolforth's research was some kind of Oppo project conducted on behalf of the Begich family, but that's not consistent with what Wolforth, who spent six months on the project, told me in 2015. Wolforth said, "Quote." It was kind of a deal where the Begichs welcomed me to work on it before Mark ran for mayor. I think they wanted to know, what's the worst out there? And if I found anything, I was going to publish it. I was going to do a book. Wolforth didn't publish a book, but he did go on to work as a consultant and speechwriter for Mark Begich from 2003 to 2009. So, in conclusion... Before me, there were at least two other journalists who investigated Paisley's claims. Chris Scholl, the Dateline producer, and Charles Wolforth, the author. However, Paisley's claims were never made public until 2015. That's when I published Foregone, an initial story on my findings. And that year, I pitched my research to every major news outlet in Alaska. Every newspaper, every magazine, every TV station, every news radio station. Not a single outlet in the state reported anything I found. And you know what, I respect that. Okay, nobody owes me anything, obviously. But this isn't about me. These were serious claims about a missing politician that prompted a previously unreported FBI investigation. And I made clear that I wasn't alleging anything. I did not pitch a story saying the plane was bombed. I pitched the story saying Jerry Paisley claimed the missing plane was bombed. I offered to connect reporters in Alaska to my own sources. I offered to provide documents. In the end, only a single Alaska reporter interviewed me. And then that reporter didn't air the piece. In my opinion, Paisley's claims deserved to be investigated. Here we have a convicted murderer with documented mob ties who married the widow of a missing congressman and claimed he played a part in the death of the congressman. So why did the Alaska media ignore this story? I'm not entirely sure, but I can make a few educated guesses. First, it's toxic. Alaska is huge land-wise, but it has a small, insular circle of political and media elites. Why rock the boat? Why piss off a powerful political family in the state, the Begiches? Second, I think there's general sympathy for the Begich kids, which I understand. They lost their dad at a young age. They suffered a horrible loss and lifelong grief. Honestly, I feel bad for them. Third, the story is complex. It's easier to ignore than to investigate. I mean, here I am nine years later. Fourth, I was just a freelancer. It was easy to ignore me. Thankfully though, I did get some press. In November 2015, my friend and former colleague at Seattle Weekly, Rick Anderson, a really amazing old school reporter who later died, wrote a cover story on my findings. It was Seattle, not Alaska, but Seattle is the closest major American city to Alaska. And I'll always be grateful to Rick for writing that story. Rick's story opened Pandora's box. After it ran, I got many new tips, including one which really blew me away, a tip from a reliable source who said they may have found part of the missing plane. So later, in part because of that tip, we're going to Alaska. But first, we're going to Arizona. Next time on Missing in Alaska. And your father, Met him at the airport. My father Yes. Oh wow. <laughs> did you, did you not know that? No,
5: no. This is the only thing I know about anything to do with uh, with 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 what I think you're talking about is Jerry was telling people there's a real big deal about to go down, and that was right about the time that the that the baggage plane went down. But uh, no, this you're blowing me away with this.
3: Before we go, two things. First, we're dropping a bonus episode this week. It's the full text of a never-before-published report on Jerry Paisley prepared by a private investigator for Dateline NBC. So check it out. Second, something new, an epilogue. In 1997, two years after the FBI ended its investigation into Jerry Paisley's claims, the Bureau got an interesting new lead. A tipster, whose name is blacked out in records I obtained, sent the FBI copies of letters exchanged between two people who discussed the alleged assassination of the missing congressman. The names of these two individuals are blacked out, but let me read you part of an official FBI document with the word blank substituted in for redacted sections. Quote, The correspondence, which covers the period September 12th to October 31st, 1995, consists of letters allegedly written by blank to blank that he had a conversation with blank in which Blank claims that while in Alaska in 1972, he and Blank placed a bomb aboard Congressman Hale Boggs's plane. Blank allegedly told Blank that the bombing was carried out on the orders of his boss, alleged Blank, who was doing a favor for Hoover. According to Blank, Congressman Boggs wanted to cut the budget of the FBI, and Hoover wanted Boggs taken out. So again, that's part of an official FBI memo. Now, here's something written by the tipster who forwarded the mysterious letters to the Bureau. Quote, The Hoover angle sounds far-fetched to me, a convict conning a convict. On the other hand, however, the insurance motive obviously could have some basis in fact. At any rate, I will keep you informed if there are any subsequent letters. This is absolutely fascinating. Someone, somehow, got copies of letters exchanged between two people, two convicts apparently discussing the alleged assassination of the missing congressman. Was one of the convicts Jerry Paisley? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Something else that's very interesting. The mystery letters cover the period of September 12th to October 31st, 1995. So the letters start on September 12th, 1995. That was exactly one day before the FBI interviewed Danny Zivinich. One day before the US Attorney's Office declined to prosecute the case. So your task this week involves these letters, specifically the tipster who sent them to the FBI. The FBI blacked out nearly all of the tipster's information. Nearly all. At the bottom of the tipster's letter, still visible in the footer, you can see the following. Vanderbilt University, 1207 18th Avenue South, Nashville, Tennessee, 37212. Telephone, 615-321-9568 fax 615-327-0778. So whoever sent the FBI the mystery letters in 1997 used Vanderbilt University letterhead. If you know who sent the letters, or you are the person who sent the letters, please contact us. You can reach us by phone at one mia tips That's one 642 8477 Again, one 642 8477 Or you can reach us via email at tips at iheartmedia.com That's tips, T-I-P-S, at iheartmedia.com An important note. None of the people Jerry Paisley claimed took part in or had knowledge of the alleged bombing Joe Bonanno, Joe Iattarola, Danny Zivinich, Gene Fowler, Larry Fowler, or Peggy Begich were ever charged with or convicted of crimes tied to any of Paisley's allegations. Ben Bolin is our executive producer. Paul Decken is our supervising producer. Chris Brown is our assistant producer. Seth Nicholas Johnson is our producer. Sam T Garden is our research assistant. And I'm your host and executive producer, John Walzak. You can find me on Twitter at, at JohnWalzak, J-O-N-W-A-L-C-Z-A-K. Special thanks to Tom Davis, Mike Grimes, and Dave Tullis for having the courage to speak out while so many others remain silent. Missing in Alaska is a co-production of iHeart Media and Greenfort Media.
1: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.
6: Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.
2: Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health.